pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Let's begin reading in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was in need, but I did not burden anyone for the For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasting mission... They work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, well, their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, this passage this morning, it seems complex and complicated. It is not, but it is difficult. And this is going to be a difficult few moments for us because it's not that the words or the meaning or the message that is in these first 15 verses of chapter 11 is difficult. It's that it's very difficult to hear in the context in which we live. We're going to address today one of maybe the most prominent spiritual problem of our day, of our culture, and in this room. Many of you are going to face head on your greatest challenge, your biggest struggle. The one thing that needs to change in your life more than anything else. And here is my concern for you. Is that you will hear but you will not receive. If you leave here this morning unclear, I would implore you to go back and listen to this message again and again and again until it is clear to you. There may not be any words I ever speak to you more important than the words I'm going to say this morning. As we've been talking about for weeks now, Paul has been building 
this case. He's been, he's been showing us, the Spirit of God has been showing us how we tend towards externals, how we live infatuated with the outside and the externals and the things that we see and how we overvalue so many things and undervalue the things which ought to be the priorities in our life. So to set the stage with our listening guide, we'll start out by being reminded that we overvalue gifts and ability, but we undervalue providence and presence. We've talked about what happens and how we see the things that happen around us and how we filter our circumstances through our lives and taking thoughts captive. And all of these things have been building to this point where we'll get some clarity. See, here's what happens. What happens in a world enamored by gifts, by abilities, by by accomplishments, by what we revere people in our culture, everyone in this room reveres people on external basis. You cannot live in this culture and not do this. And so if at any point this morning your heart wants to push back at what you're hearing, you are denying the truth because I am in the same culture you're in. No one in this room, listen, there's no one in this room that's having conversations at work and in your leisure time and with your friends revering the internal qualities that ought to be revered because it's just, it just doesn't happen. And so here's what does happen. We encounter circumstances in our life. God puts us in a particular place at particular times. And in those moments, we don't understand. We may not like it. We don't agree with it. We don't. And what, what God is doing in that moment is he's calling us to faithfulness. And in that moment, the issue is not what you're feeling. It's not, am I, am I smart enough to get through this? Am I strong enough to get through this? Do I know enough? Do I have enough training? Can I figure this out? How am I going to do this? All the things that come to your mind, those are not the issue. The issue is that the sovereign God of the universe who has allowed you in this moment in your life, has called you to be faithful. When you focus on yourself, you have doomed yourself to failure. Viewing the world through the lens of what we bring to the table is the wisdom of the world. In the kingdom of God, We are to view the world through the lens of what God brings to the table. So Paul is dealing with people who are judging him according to his appearance and his training and his credentials. He's being mocked because he doesn't charge and isn't wealthy and doesn't have this and doesn't have that. He seems like an amateur compared to these so-called super apostles. He seems unrefined. And Paul doesn't defend himself. Again, what he does is what he's always done, and that's he defends the gospel. 
And it is the gospel. It is the gospel that you find in the pages of the scripture you hold in your hand that would teach you that God uses exactly the people that the world wouldn't think he would use. It's exactly what he does. And what Paul says to us this morning is the standard by which we judge so oftentimes is nonsense and foolishness. If you think you can understand the world from the outside looking in, you're operating in the wisdom of the world and headed for destruction. So what we have to understand is that Jesus is never, ever a means to a greater end. Now, I know that many of you don't understand what I'm saying. I know you don't. I know that you don't. But my prayer is that you will. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband and present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He has fatherly affection towards them. Don't think of jealousy in a negative term because the Bible speaks of jealousy uh, that is good. In Exodus 34, God's name is jealous. It is not a controlling jealousy. It's a protective jealousy. And so I this morning feel very jealous for you. As your pastor, I'm concerned for your spiritual condition. In fact, I'm not just concerned. I'm jealous. I feel burdened. And I want you to understand that I take very seriously. My job is to walk you down the aisle to Jesus and present you to him. And it will not happen if you don't understand the dangers that swirl around you and why you continually find yourself in trouble. See, he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Why is Paul bringing up the Garden of Eden? Haven't we talked about the Garden of Eden this three weeks in a row, haven't we? It keeps coming up. And why does it keep coming up? Because it's important to understand what happened in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says the woman saw the fruit. She saw the tree and it was good. Verse 6. She saw it and it was good. God defines good. And what did God say was good? God said it was good not to eat of the tree. And what Eve did and what Adam did was they redefined good. You have to get this. You, so long as you are defining good in your life, you are going to flounder. You don't define good. I don't define good. That's what got us in the mess we were in to begin with. If you had known, if you were capable of knowing what's good, you wouldn't need a Savior. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. 
And again, we're reminded, look, the battleground is where? Verse 3, second half, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Underline the word sincere and pure because here's what I want you to understand. This is very important. The reference, sincere and pure, is a reference to motive, not activity. In other words, what is happening here is it's not activity versus inactivity. It's devotion versus pure and sincere devotion. And you're saying to yourself, hold on a minute. I'm I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm clear on this. It's internal, not external. See, devotion oftentimes... You and me want to see devotion externally. If I say, is this person devoted? You immediately think of external things that you see them do that's going to qualify them as devoted. That's not what it's talking about because guess what you can't see? You can't see pure and you can't see sincere. It's internal. And what Paul is driving in every little word here, God wants us to see this truth. That it is possible to appear devoted to Christ and be deceived. Hear what I'm saying. Come to church every week. Bring your Bible, sit, listen, and be deceived. It's not external, it's internal. I don't mean lose your salvation. That's not what I mean. I mean be deceived. So what we need to realize is that if Jesus comes to give you what is good and you define good, all you have is a divine Santa Claus. That's all you have is a mirage. And it is the number one thing the world is selling And many of you have been impacted by it. Subtly, in the way that you think, in the way that you talk, in the way that you pray, you don't say it, but internally, this is what you believe about God. Because you define good, because you look at the circumstances in your life and you cast the judgment as to what's going on and why and how and what, and then you then bring it to God and want God to fix it. Just exactly what we talked about last week. Listen, let me help you. Something happens in your life. Some circumstance blows up in your life. The response is, I can't believe that God is allowing this to happen in my life. Why? Why can you not believe that God is allowing this to happen in your life? It means, it proves that you see Jesus as a means of fixing problems. That's why you say that. You think things like, well, what happened to God cares for me? 
I wouldn't be going through this if God was watching out for me. See, when life becomes the slightest bit uncomfortable or horribly uncomfortable and anywhere in between, every thought that we don't take captive to the gospel will seek to define what is good. I'm telling you. Many of you do not know what I'm talking about. You, you are blind to how deceived you are. This is an, an incredible opportunity in your life. There's been intense, unbelievable spiritual warfare leading up to this time. We try to use God to get to our definition of good. Jesus is not the means to a greater end. He is the end for which we were created. Those two things could not be more opposite. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. All-sufficient Savior. All-sufficient. That means in any situation, in any circumstance, no matter how bleak, no matter how impossible, no matter how difficult, no matter how bewildering, no matter how unexpected, He is the all-sufficient Savior. Our hope is bound up in Christ alone, not Christ and us, not me and Him. Not you and him, not him and your gifts or him and your intellect or him and your ability. None of those things will work. Him alone. We say things like, oh God, thank you for what you have done for me. If you would just give me this this thing, this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Lord, so that I can see and understand and know, so that I can have the answer to my unanswered questions, so that I can figure out what the hidden mystery is behind whatever's going on in my life. That's exactly what's going on. And we say, Lord, I know you want to bless me. I know you want what is good for me. So I'm going to take this fruit and I'm going to eat it. I know you love me. So I know you're going to allow me to achieve this. That's not the gospel. That's a different gospel. That is a foreign message to the Bible. That is a message that will doom you. It will not lead you to salvation. It cannot save. It will not save because it is not the gospel. It's a different gospel. Look at verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if, if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, well, you put up with it readily enough. You understand this is 2,000 years ago. 
It literally sounds like I wrote this today. This is what I would write in my heart under the guidance of the Holy Spirit about Michael Memorial Baptist Church. I would write verse 4. That's what I would write. You're not afraid of it. You don't run from it. You just brush up against it. You, you get friendly with it. You think, well, you know, it's harmless. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. He's saying you, you've bought into a belief system that is no longer the gospel. Now listen, listen, listen. There is a spiritual transaction that takes place when God's word no longer sets the agenda and shapes the priorities of our lives. Last week, I talked about how the gospel was, was displaced. This is what I'm talking about. Some of you can, can remember a time when you were a new believer and, and God's word was so foundational and so formative in your daily lives and what you did. And you've displaced it and you've drifted over time away from that. And today you're living according to a different gospel. Listen, you are. You're living according to a different gospel. You've adopted a spiritual transaction has taken place. He says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Listen. Content without quality is always better than quality without content. The fullest churches are always the churches that put quality over content. Always. Because people can't handle content. The flesh wants quality. Of course we want quality, but not over content. What I'm saying is, is that God will not use, he, he won't use excellence without content. And you know what happens to people who sit in places where that's the case? Nothing. That's what happens. Nothing. A bunch of external nonsense of no eternal consequence. People today want a bloodless, cleaned up Christianity. They want to go to church and they want to hear something that encourages them, that makes them feel better. And they don't want to hear about blood. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about all these things that make us uncomfortable. And so we just, we just polish everything up and make it look real shiny and dance around the difficult things and preach topical messages based on whatever happens to float in or out of somebody's mind. 
And you see, you notice in verses 7 through 12, what we have is the Apostle Paul talking about how he came as a servant and how he, had to, he lived even though he had need. He didn't receive uh, help from the Corinthians because of their obsession with the externals. And so he purposely lived in poverty before them. He came humbly, worked with his hands. He was very common. He was very ordinary. He purposely did that. He received help from other churches, but not from them while he was there because he was trying to send them a message. And it's the same message that the gospel sends us. Our Savior comes born in a barn. The Bible says he had nowhere to lay his head down. The Bible says he came not to be served, but to be a servant. You see? But how does this happen? How do we get derailed? How do we get, how does the gospel get displaced? How do we get into this cycle of just, Asking questions like, well, why aren't things the way they ought to be? And why can't I? And why? Why are you constantly battling with your family? Why are you constantly battling in your marriage or with your children? Why are you constantly battling at work? Why are you constantly battling your finances? Why are you constantly bewildered with your health situation? Why are you constantly battling in your personal relationships? Why? Is it just this Keep spinning. Why? And you tell yourself things like, well, it's just, uh, it's just the enemy and he's always attacking me. And, and then you try to go to church more, read your Bible more. Do it. But here's the thing. You're, you're, you're just trying to get God to answer your problems according to your definition. You're not filtering the problem through the gospel first. You're relying on yourself, and you want God to help you. That's not how it works. God doesn't need my help or your help. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need it. He's all sufficient. You have to read your Bible and understand the gospel for what it says. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Did Satan do that? I want you to remember, because we're going to talk about Satan in a minute, and a lot of you are going to be like, I knew it was Satan. Your thoughts. How many times do I have to say this? It's right there. It doesn't say Satan's thoughts. It's your thoughts, my thoughts. That's where Satan gets the foothold. He's not doing it. You're letting him do it. Or the Bible's lying when it says that you're more than a conqueror or that no weapon formed against you can prosper. Unless you let it. Yes. So he's going to tell us now the dynamics of deception. Look at verse 13. Here's the explanation. For such men are false apostles, these ones that they're all enamored with, with the externals, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds, to their deeds. So understand something. There are professing Christians. There are Christian leaders. They're they're best-selling authors in the Christian book division doing the devil's work. Praying on your non-captive thoughts. That's how they win. They're Christian teachers. They're servants of Satan, rivals to God. And to follow them will lead you to the same damnation that they're headed to. So here's the the great danger. Is making a good thing the ultimate thing. I know you're sitting there and you're confused and you don't understand. What is it? What are you trying to tell me? Make it plain. Make it clear. How do I take my thoughts captive? How are my thoughts being taken captive? What's going on? Well, there you go. I'm going to make it so clear. It couldn't be any clearer. This is the danger. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden, and this is what happens in your life, and this is what happens in my life if I don't take my thoughts captive. It's making a good thing the ultimate thing. He takes a good thing, a gift that God has given to bless us, and he deceives us with his cunning. How does he do that? Because we don't take our thoughts captive. He makes us start to believe that this good thing is an ultimate thing. It's exactly how this happens. It's an important thing. It's a good thing. And so then what he does is he he gets us to focus our thoughts on that thing. Because when you, listen, listen. When circumstances erupt in your life, whatever you're focused on, other than Jesus, there's the thing. That's the thing. He's got you. He's got you. Because you're focused on what's not ultimate. He's going to convince you that wrapping your heart around this thing. Listen. You're going to realize this morning that the way that you got in this rut is because you thought that by focusing on this good thing, it would protect you from getting caught up in a bad thing. Yes. See, he doesn't come disguised as in a red suit with a big tail carrying a pitchfork. He doesn't say, hey, sir, focus your mind on porn. Hey, Ma'am, why don't you start reading some romance novels or watching some sketchball movies so you start thinking and having fantasies about things that you ought not be thinking about? That's not what he does. He comes along and says, hey, this is a good thing. This is a godly thing. Focus on this thing. Pour your life into this good thing. And everything's going to work out great. 
things that were meant to be gifts. You look around and you see people wrapped up. They're wrapped up in creation. There's a lot of people today worshiping creation in all sorts of various ways. Sexuality. But mostly in this room, it's marriage and family. That's what it is. It's marriage and family. See, when Satan came to Eve, what was he talking about? He was talking about purpose and meaning and choice. He was talking about good things. He was talking about good things. He was talking about things that God cares about. He was talking about things that really do matter. He wasn't talking about dumb things that don't matter. That's how he got her attention. And the deception happened when the good thing became the ultimate thing. See, it doesn't say Satan is an angel of light. It says he masquerades as one. In other words, what he does, he puts on a disguise and he makes it look like he actually stands for good instead of evil. So let's, let's, get, let's get personal. The Bible teaches that the family is a chief instrument for the training and sending out of future worshipers of God. That's the biblical definition of family. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The question is not, ladies and gentlemen, how do I focus on my family? See, some of you are, are sitting there wishing that your spouse would focus on the family instead of focusing on their job or focusing on their, their, their 401k or focusing on their hobbies. And you think if they would just focus on their family. The question's not how do I focus on my family. The question is how do I focus my family? That's the question. How do I focus my family on what it's intended to be? Because if you focus on your family, you're going to perish. Because your family is not ultimate. Your family is not all sufficient. See, you don't like it. You don't like it. But you're really not going to like the next five minutes. The family is good. It's a gift that God gave us. But when we make the family the central governing and controlling factor in our reality and our decisions and our, our time, effort, energy, thoughts, we've been deceived by an angel of light. Putting all your hope in your family is a catastrophic mistake. It can only fail because you're asking the family to do something it cannot do. Your family is not eternal. Your biological family is not eternal. Your marriage, ladies and gentlemen, is not eternal. Do you know that? Read the words of Jesus, Matthew. He tells us, look, when the family becomes an idol, idols can only disappoint. So what do we do? Well, what we need to understand that one of the greatest gifts you can give your marriage and family is a vision 
for the people of God. Because the people of God are eternal. When you see your family through the lens of the gospel, you understand the purpose for which it is intended. The reason why marriage is a good gift from God in the first place. The reason why children are a good gift from God in the first place. They exist. They exist to raise up future worshipers. It has eternal purpose. Its purpose is not here. It is not external. It is internal. Listen, parents, your children cannot have a, a, a factual relationship with Christ. I want you to think about something. They cannot grow up and have a factual, legitimate, real, sincere relationship with Christ apart from the community of God. Do you understand that? You can be the closest, most loving, most devoted family on earth, and it is temporal. You understand that? Is it good? Yes, but it's not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate, and he has called us to raise children for ultimate things, eternal things. And so your your children need to grow up enmeshed in a world that revolves around eternal relationships, which is the body of Christ and the family of God. Not your family, nor your marriage. Man, this is going to win a Nobel Prize. I can feel it. You don't think you drank the Kool-Aid? That's why your heart's beating. And that's why you feel the way you feel right now. Is because, man, it, we drank the Kool-Aid. There's been a spiritual transaction. For some of you, it's the ball field. Let's be honest, it's the ball field. It's what it is. For some of you, it's your leisure, your activities. It's, It's the deer camp. It's your RV. It's whatever it is. For some of you, it's your education. It's the GPA. It's what college your kids are going to get into. Or are they going to succeed? Or are they going to... Are all those things important? Yes. Do I want your kids to play ball? Sure. Do I want you to go on vacation? Of course I do. Do I want your kids to succeed in life? Of course I do. But it's secondary. That's all secondary. You better be careful what you're putting at the top. You better be careful what you're focusing on producing. What voices am I listening to in my head? Because listen, it all comes from your thoughts. Your thoughts are running the whole show. 
Whatever's going on in your life this morning, it's 100% by your thoughts. And it's setting the priorities for your life and your family. And we're so, all of us are tempted to, to go astray if we're not careful. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Remember what I said? It's not activity versus inactivity. You see, you, you can be driven by other things and still be in church. It's not activity, it's displaced. It's what are the priorities? How do you discern the things that are happening in your life? When you think of you, when you start thinking of you and your family and your kids and how you feel and what about this and what about that, you have missed the point. And you're trying to relate to God as if he's missed the point. And you don't even realize it. You don't even realize it. He didn't miss the point. Nothing's happened to you by accident. He didn't miss a detail. You missed the detail. I missed the detail. If I'm not focused on the all-sufficient one. So here's the reality. The reality is, is that all of us, we're all broken. We're all broken because we all need a Savior. If we weren't broken, we wouldn't need a Savior. We all, we all have some work to do in this arena and around this conversation. We need to... We need to peer into our hearts. We need to have some difficult conversations. We need to start analyzing what we do and why we do it. And why do we think this way? And why do we react this way? And why do we feel this way? And what's going on? And we need to be willing to accept the fact that we are, we very oftentimes live as if we are all sufficient. our marriage is all sufficient, if our finances are all sufficient, if our children are all sufficient, if an angel of light, that's the disguise. That's why it's so sneaky. Furthermore, the minute you leave this room, the minute you get in your car and drive off this property, what I've said this morning is going to seem so backwards to you. It's going to seem so odd, so unrefined, 
so not understanding. wonder why that is. Thank God it's not my words because when you drive off, you're going to have these words with you. This 2 Corinthians 11 will still be in your Bible. Lest you think that the world has it right. Maybe I have it wrong. No. We're, we're all broken. But praise God, Jesus died for broken people, so there's always hope in Him. There's always hope in Him. Always, always, always. So the angel of light, the same one that tricks us into making good things ultimate, is the same one that tries to trick us into believing that, allowing our thoughts to be taken a hold of, to believe things like, well, I've made a mess of this. Well, maybe you have made a mess of this. Maybe I have made a mess of this. But what is true is, is that the all-sufficient one is available. His sufficiency is available right now. Right now. Right now. Let's stand and let's bow our heads. Lord, we're not going to believe in ourselves in this moment. We're not going to believe in our past or in our present or even in our future. We're going to believe in you. You are the all-sufficient one. You are the one that offers power greater than any other. You're the one. You're the one before whom every idol will perish, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It is you. And we know that you're available right now to every person in this room. And so we respond to your sufficiency, to your greatness, Lord. We confess that we are easily led astray. Bring us back to center this morning, Lord. Help us to focus on you. What do you say? What are your priorities? What matters to you? Who are you? What can you do? What is your strength? What do you know? It's all about you. Help us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for what's available in this moment. So this altar is open. I invite you to come. And I invite you to, to just have a conversation with your Father who loves you, who's all-sufficient, who's mighty beyond belief, who's powerful over every dominion and power, whose love for you nothing can separate you from. Nothing. Nothing. So come to Him. Come to Him. Make your life right with Him. Give your heart and soul to Him. Give your marriage to Him and your children to Him, your job to Him, your health to Him, your finances to Him. Give it all. It's His anyway. Surrender to Him. That which needs to be surrendered for the glory of God.